Hey church, you alright? Welcome to church, let me add my welcome to Mike's. Uh, love going through John's gospel, just letting who Jesus is impact our lives. Uh, let, before we turn to the Bible, let me just pray, and then let's pray that God will speak to us. Father, thank you that you're with us. Thank you that we're in your very presence, and you're here just now. God, I ask in your great power and in your great love, you would meet with people today, Lord. I pray you'd reveal yourself in the way that only you could. Speak, I pray. Help me to speak, but I pray you would speak. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if anyone saw the uh, program. It was on a number of years ago called Confessions, and it was, it was really interesting. It had different people confessing different things that happened often in their workplaces or whatever. And there was one uh, place, it was a pizza restaurant, and the, it was quite common for the staff in the pizza restaurant to steal pieces of topping as they were about to serve the pizza. So they would take a wee something like this, and then they would serve the pizza. Anyway, one of the guys got completely caught because he'd taken a piece of um, mushroom off this pizza, and, and it had a, a piece of stringy cheese going between his mouth and the pizza. I mean, he couldn't exactly say, it wasn't me. You know, <laughs> he served up, caught in the act. I don't know if you've ever been caught in the act. Um, you know, what would God say to you if you were caught in the act? That's what we're going to be looking at today. It's this lady who's caught in the act of adultery. And this is how Jesus Christ, who is God, responded to her. Um, so let's turn to John chapter 8. Early in the morning, this is Jesus in the Feast of the Tabernacles. All the Jews are gathered in Jerusalem. And it says that early in the morning... He came again to the temple. All the people came to him and sat down and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees, they were Jesus' arch enemies, always looking for opportunity to trip Jesus up. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placed her in the midst. Then they said to him, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. But Jesus bent down on the grounds and wrote with his finger on the grounds. As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin, throw the first stone. At once, once more, he bent down and wrote on the grounds. But when they heard it, they went away, one by one, beginning with the oldest ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. It's an amazing account. It was like he was backed into a corner, but he didn't flinch. And he not only was able to answer their question in a way that refuted their issues. But he made a big point to the world 
about how God feels about sinners like us. So I'm going to take this passage and very simply, we're going to put it into five scenes, like a play, five scenes. And we're going to break it down and work our way through it. And we're just going to let the truth of what we read impact us, okay? So open your hearts. Some of this might challenge you. At some points, you might want to think, I want out of here. Me too. We're in this together. But let's let God impact our lives. Open your heart. Let's let God speak. So scene one is the test. This is verses two to six. It says, verse two, early in the morning, they came to him again in the temple and all the people came to him and they sat down and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now, something's missing from this whole scene. I don't know if you notice it. Spot what's missing. Okay. Women can do many, many things. Women can do many, many things. But one thing that women cannot do by themselves, it's one thing, is commit adultery. Okay. I don't know much, but I do know it takes two to commit adultery. Where's the guy? Where's the dudes? Where's the, where's the other one? Okay, it's just the woman. Furthermore, where's the Jewish court? Because if they were really interested in obeying the Jewish law, they would have the guy there as well, and it would be brought, they would be brought in front of the Jewish Sanhedrin. They weren't interested in actually what the law had to say all they were interested was condemning Jesus. They were just wanting for a way to trick Jesus. And it says in verse 6, they said this to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Now, what was the dilemma here? The dilemma was very simple. Um, you see, Rome, Rome was the opposing army and the, the, uh, the dominating force over Israel at the time. And Rome had forbidden Jews from implementing capital punishment. Jews were not allowed in and of themselves to apply the Jewish law, which required sometimes a stoning. They were, they were, they were refused that, that opportunity by the Romans. Only Romans could decide on executions. So if Jesus went ahead with what the Jewish law said, okay, she needs stones, then he would be coming against Rome. And they knew that. They were trying to set him against Rome. But also they knew that Jesus was very gracious. They knew that Jesus was continually showing grace to sinners and that was one of the things, the acts they had against Jesus. So again, they were looking for an opportunity to, let's do something that will trip him up. Let's try and make him look like a, a, a pro-Rome person, or let's look, make him look like a pro-Jewish person and let him contradict his sense of mercy that he often showed. So either he was going to have problems with Rome, or he was going to have problems with the Jews. And they knew that this would back him into a corner. That was their agenda. Scene two, the finger of God verses 6b to 8. Verse 6, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. So they've, they've put him in this situation. They're saying, should we stone her like the law of Moses says? Are you going to uphold the Jewish law? And what does he do? He bends down and with his finger, he writes on the grounds. Now, the cynic might look on and think, okay, he's biding for time. Okay, like, that's what we would be doing. Oh, no, what am I going to say here? Oh, boy. Okay, <laughs> This is a hard one, right? Okay, so, I mean, this was a huge, but something that, okay, he was just, he was kind of coming up with a plan of, what do I say here? I don't think that's what he was doing. Jesus was so cool. 
He was never backed into a corner. He was always 100% in control. He was never at the mercy of their hypocritical schemes. He is the man. So he wasn't doing that. So what was he doing? Well, some people have speculated about what did Jesus write on the grounds? I mean, I've heard lots of people come up with lots of things. Some people thought he wrote the names of all the Pharisees' girlfriends. (laughs) There might be some truth to that. That would be quite funny. And it would be just like Jesus to do something like that. But I, I think, I mean, while that may have been the case, I think there was a bigger point here. I think let the Bible interpret the Bible. Question, where else in the Bible does the finger of God appear? And she go right back, right back to the early stages of Israel's formation. Remember when they were set free from Egypt, taken through a wilderness, and there in the wilderness they were brought to Mount Sinai, and there on Mount Sinai, Moses went up into the mountain, and God appears to Moses, and it says in Exodus 31 verse 18, he gave two tablets of the covenant law, that's the Ten Commandments, the tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. I think that's exactly what was going on here. I think this was the link. I think exactly what was going on here is this. You're quizzing me on the Jewish law. I wrote the Jewish law. I am the God's of the Bible who wrote them in the first place. And yet you're putting me on trial. It's interesting. Where was this taking place? Remember what does it say in the verses? Where was it taking place? In the temple, right? What was the ground in the temple? It wasn't earth. It was stone, flagstones. He was writing with a finger on stones. It is a complete picture of the giving of the law from God himself thousands of years before, and they were pulling him up on how he would deal with the law. And he was just pointing out, I wrote the law. That was me. I am the law giver. And so this is an incredible turn of events. In fact, later on in the same chapter, chapter 8, we'll get to it as we work our way through John. Uh, later on in the same chapter, probably in the same similar conversations or the same day, he declared that he is none other than I am the very God of the Bible, the lawgiver, the one who they were worshiping in the wilderness way back. Jesus is none other than God in the flesh, and he declared it to them. It's incredible. Verse 7 says, and so he he was writing on the floor, and it says, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Who is qualified to judge? Are human beings ultimately qualified to judge? We're flawed. Every one of us, not one of us could claim to be without sin. Satan, he's the one who often brings accusation your way. But of all beings, he isn't qualified to ever bring accusation because he's the ultimate lawbreaker. Only God, only Jesus himself, sinless, perfect, Lawgiver, creator, is the only one who is truly just and able to ultimately bring judgment. So he made this declaration, said, let him who is without sin be the first to cast the first stone. And then what did he do? Verse 8, and once more he bent down again and wrote on the grounds with his finger. Question, 
How many times was the Jewish law given on tablets of stone? Two times. How many times did Jesus write on the grounds with his finger? Two times. What happened after the law giving the first time? Remember when Moses got the Ten Commandments and he came down the mountain? And what was happening? Remember? They were worshiping, they were worshiping a golden calf. They were breaking the commandments. As soon as the commandments were given, they were breaking the commandments. What's that? What's going on there? Here's what's going on here. The law was never given to make you a better person. The law was given to show how fundamentally flawed we are as human beings. Listen to what it says. Uh, this, is, this is what it says in Romans chapter 3, verse 20. For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. Because none of us are capable. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. And it's significant that as soon as the law was given on Mount Sinai, that first time God wrote on that, those stone tablets, the very instant that happens, the people were worshipping a golden calf. And Moses threw the stones down. Then he had to go back up the mountain and get a second set of stone commandments from God for the people. Where did the stone commandments end up? I'm giving you a Bible quiz today. Where did they end up? In the, in the Ark of the Covenant. You know that whether you know the Bible or have watched Indiana Jones. Either way, you know that, right? It was in the Ark of the Covenant. And no one could see it. You remember Indiana Jones? You don't look at that. You, you melt. Fire comes out your eyes and you become skeletons, okay? You remember the Raiders of the Lost Heart? You don't look in there. They got that from the Bible, by the way. You don't look at the commandments. You don't. Because they will bring death to you. And they are always to be never seen under a mercy seat, which is the lid of the ark. And on that mercy seat, once a year, blood was spilled of an animal, a sacrifice that a priest made on behalf of the people. So here is the deal, that we are sinners. We have broken the law of God. And every time God looks upon the law, he looks upon the mercy seat on which blood was spilled, which means that we, although we deserve to be condemned because we are lawbreakers, get mercy because blood was shed to cleanse lawbreakers. That's the bigger picture. And they thought they were making a point to Jesus. But Jesus making mega points to the world, to us 2,000 years later, and to the people gathered right there. Awesome. Let's hear it for Jesus. <laughs> Scene three, verse nine. Conviction comes. Say, uh-oh. Verse nine. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And, I, and this is where I say, I don't know if Jesus wrote the name of their girlfriends down. I know he used his finger on the ground, and that clearly links to the finger of God writing the stone commandments in the first place. My guess is he probably did write the Ten Commandments. He may well have gone on the second time to write down the names the times, the places, when they, I don't know. But all we know is that in that moment, those accusers were convicted to the core of their being that they were sinners and they left one after the other. And you might say to anything, well, phew, look at all the bad people, there. look at all those hypocrites, then look at that adulterous woman. Woo. And you might say, well, Peter, I'm not an adulterer. This doesn't apply to me. Well, I'm not sure I would agree with that. Have you ever looked at a woman and undressed her in your minds? Don't put your hand up. 
This is what Jesus said about you and me. Matthew 5, verse 27, 28. You've heard that it is said, you shall not commit adultery. That's the seventh commandment. That's the very commandment that was in question here. The very commandment this woman was being accused of. Jesus raised the bar. He didn't lower the bar. Jesus raised the bar and said this. You've heard that it says you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, or for that matter, a a woman looking at a man with lustful intent, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Then the truth is, based on Jesus, based on God's view of the commandments, as far as humans are concerned, oh, you do the physical act, that's adultery. As far as God's concerned, you even go there in your heads, God will judge you on your intention, not just on your action. And how many people today would be divorced or locked up if you had followed through with all the things that have gone on in your soul or in my soul? Answer, we'd be behind bars, we'd be locked up, and yet, and we think that God's going to be lenient on us, we deserve hell. And then you, the commands go on, commandment number six, thou shalt not murder. You know, he said, well, I'm not a murderer. Well, Jesus probably would disagree. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 21. You have heard that it's said of those of old, and he quotes commandment six, you shall not murder. And whoever murders is liable to judgment. But I say to you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. You've had anger. You've had bitterness. I've had anger and bitterness. God said it's as good as murder. Who is liable to judgment? According to God's. Who is a murderer? According to God's. Someone who has anger, aggression in the heart towards another person. Who is liable to judgment? You and I. We are worthy of judgment. Who needs saved? You and I. We need saved. You know, sin is like an acorn. You can take that acorn and in that acorn is a tree, to be honest. You put it on on good soil and out pops a magnificent tree. Now, everything that tree needed to become, all that that tree is, was already in the acorn before it ever germinated and took root. And that tree will flourish and then it will produce thousands of acorns And in each one of those individual acorns on that magnificent tree is another tree that will produce thousands of acorns. So you could say, in an acorn, you could fill this world with an ocean of wood just from one acorn. It might be, however, that that acorn gets thrown down and lands on the pavement. And then after a while it rots and it never germinates and never becomes all that it could be if it were put in more fertile soil. And you might look on at someone else and say, well, they're a murderer because they're actually in Stockton and they're an adulterer because they've been divorced several times and that's all that's gone on. You might look at them and, but here's the deal. Their acorn just landed on more fertile soil than yours did. It might have been that you lived a sheltered life. It might have been that you had a certain upbringing and your acorn just landed on a pavement. But I have to tell you that every single one of us has that acorn in our soul. Every one of us has the potential to produce a forest of an ocean of woods. Every one of us is a potential Adolf Hitler or Mao. Every single one of us 
is a potential, it is not just potential, is a sinner before God. And we have within us the seed of sin that leads people to do atrocities, but we didn't just because maybe we didn't have the courage or the opportunity or the context in which to become that. You know, people look on at the Germans and say, how could a nation be so deceived? Man, you didn't grow up at that time in that place. You have no idea how you would have responded. My guess is most of us here would have responded exactly the same. Why? Because we have that seed, that potential, that flawedness, that fallenness. And but by the grace of God, we would end up messing up completely. We need to understand that we are sinners. Every single one of us sinners. Some of you are sinners sexually. You are perverted. You lust after women. You gaze on pornography. You lust after men. You gaze on pornography. You undress people in your heads. You go where you should never go. And some of you justify this as, oh, I'm just, being, I'm just doing what's natural. You're addicted to masturbation. This is how you're living. And some of you are that. Some of you are given to verbal sins. You gossip. You bitch. You put people down. You won't think twice about putting people down. You wouldn't do it to their face, but you'll do it behind their backs. You're an aggressive husband. You're so aggressive as a husband. You're a nagging wife. You're a sinner. Some of you steal. You covet what other people have got. Even though you don't physically steal, some of you covet what other people have got. Others of you are involved with financial sin. You're thoroughly in debt because you've lived completely outside of your means and not being a good steward of what God has given you. You've been completely stingy when there's been overt need and you've done nothing with the money that God has given you in order partly to share and to give and to love others. Some of us are involved with gluttony, alcohol abuse, drug abuse. Some of you are murderers in your thoughts. Some of you have murdered the child in your womb. We are sinners. Many are liars in this room. And you always justify, oh, it's not that bad. I am in all of these categories. I am messed up. I am warped. Your pastor, every single one of us is guilty. And some of you having heard that list are thinking, well, I'm not so bad after all. Well, that's called pride. And according to the Bible, that's the worst. That's the worst. Guilty before God. And the Bible says in Ezekiel 18 verse 20, the soul who sins shall die. There is no way around it. The soul who sins will die. That is the penalty for sin, and everyone is guilty. And that's what happened in that crowd. Jesus said, let him who is without sin be the first one to cast the stone. And then starting from the oldest, probably because the oldest was more aware, often as you you get older, it should be that you become more sensitive to your own fallenness. And it says, starting with the oldest, they started leaving. The Holy Spirit wrote, guilty, guilty, guilty on every heart of those listening. But this is the first step to recovery. You need to know your disease before you can go to the doctor to get the cure. You won't even ask for a cure if you don't know you've got a disease. Most people in Edinburgh don't know they've got the worst disease ever, worse than any disease you could get physically. It's a spiritual disease called the rejection of God, called sin, called our, it's it's secret, it's behind the scenes, everyone does it, and we're sinners, and we have a deep, deep condition that only grace can save us from. There are two different types of sinners on this earth. One, those who know they are sinners. Two, those who think they are righteous. That's the only two types of sinners on the earth, and Jesus had them in this crowd. And you see Jesus responding differently to the different types of sinners. 
He would bring law to the proud, but he would bring grace to the humble. That's how Jesus interacted. Those who thought they were righteous, he would apply the law to them. And they would realize before God, no one is righteous. To those who were humble and knew they were totally broken, he would apply grace to them. And that's why you see sometimes Jesus in his interactions, you think, Jesus, that was harsh. And other times you think, Jesus, that was seriously lenient. It's because he's interacting with two very different types of sinners. It's not because he's schizophrenic. It's because you're tapping into the grace of God and the judgment of God, depending on your demeanor as you approach him. What happens when you're convicted of sin? Well, what happens is what happened in this crowd. Some people are drawn to Jesus. Some people go away from Jesus when they're convicted of sin. It's like in a car. Some people, are, they're all in neutral. Conviction comes. Some people go into reverse. Whoa, can't handle that. Other people put themselves into gear and move towards Jesus. The lady was utterly convicted of sin and she went to Jesus. The Pharisees were convicted of sin and they moved away from Jesus. And they moved away from the only one who could have saved them from their own sin. You see, Satan's trophy, I think, is more the Pharisee than the prostitute. The ultimate design of Satan, I think, is more the Pharisee than the prostitute. How do you respond when you are convicted of sin? Do you go into gear and go towards Jesus, or do you go into reverse and move back from Jesus? The Bible says in James chapter 4, verse 6, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So you need to put down your rocks. I need to put down our rocks and we need to not stone other people. The Bible is clear. It says in Romans chapter 2, verse 1, you may think you can condemn such people, but you are just as bad. And you have no excuse. When you say they are wicked and should be punished, you are condemning yourself, for you judge others and do the very same things yourself. I have a good friend who a few years ago, he, a leader of a church, known him for years and years, and I still am his good friend. And a few years ago, he made a very dreadful mistake. He had an affair. And when it all came out, he, was, he, he personally stepped back from ministry, which was the right thing to do. And he started getting counseling, and him and his wife were working on the marriage. And it's a dreadful situation. The week following that happening and him stepping back from being the leader of that church, and it's a great church. And God had really blessed that church and is blessing that church. The assistant pastor stood up the week following all this coming out. And the assistant pastor preached from these verses that I'm preaching from today. And actually, he put a stone in everyone's seat. Everyone had a stone in their seat. And there's a big cross at the front. And he talked about, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And he invited the entire congregation to bring the stones that they had and laid them at the foot of the cross understanding that the cross gives us all a level playing field. That our fallenness gives us all a level playing field. It's not that, oh, I'm a better sinner than you are, or you're a worse sinner than I am. We're sinners. 
and the souls that sin must die. And But Jesus died for sinners on the cross. He took the death that was required because of sin. And therefore, it makes it a level playing field. So stop, put your stones down. Who, are we, who am I to judge another person? Who are you to judge another person? Who are we to, before God, think we're any better than anyone else? We're incredibly loved, but we're incredibly sinful. Scene number four, say, few. The gospel of grace, verses 10 and 11. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. This is mind blowing, and yet it's confusing. See, the Pharisees would condemn her, but they could not condemn her. Jesus could condemn her, but he would not condemn her. Jesus was qualified. She'd broken the seventh commandment. And according to Leviticus, if we're to believe Jesus, he is none other than God. He authored Leviticus. Jesus, apparently, Leviticus, it says that an adulteress must be stoned. That was the moral requirement of the law. That's how serious sin is. And Leviticus just said, here it is. Jesus apparently authored that. And now Jesus here, when faced with an adulterous woman, apparently seems to be contradicting the very law that he put in place in the first place. Now, how's that? That seems contradictory. But I have to tell you that God is inflexible in his justice. If he wasn't inflexible in his justice, he would cease being God. You imagine a a judge in a courtroom and all of a sudden, seeing case after case after case, then all of a sudden, his son's brought in in front of him. And he said, hey, son, what are you doing here? And his son says, oh, I killed someone. He said, what? You killed someone? He said, yeah, dad, I didn't mean it. I just had a knife. And then next thing I knew, I went like this. And the next thing I knew, he was dead. I didn't really mean it. And then imagine the judge says, okay, case dismissed. <laughs> I mean, you would instantly, you would have, yeah, that judge would have no credibility whatsoever. That judge would be depraved completely. And yet, here it seems like God is somehow or another contradicting the very law that he put in place. How is it possible for Jesus to be both merciful and just? How could Jesus justly acquit this lady? How could Jesus' love and mercy and justice and condemnation both be satisfied because both need to be satisfied because he's God. How could that happen? And the answer is that six months after that moment, Jesus died in her place. That's the only way that was possible. I know a price needed to be paid. Jesus didn't deny justice. He just made sure that justice was paid in and of himself for her. The reason you're not being condemned, lady, is because in six months' time in this city, I will be condemned on your behalf. Two seeming injustices. That a guilty woman would be acquitted and an innocent man would be condemned. But that was the way that God resolved these great tensions within his being. His incredible 
inflexible justice and his incredible, relentless, radical love. He resolved them together in the cross where his judgment on sin was dished out and his love for sinners was expressed and an answer came in a radical way. 2 Corinthians 5.21, my favorite verse in the whole Bible. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He forgave He healed, he delivered based on a price that he was about to pay. All the miracles in Jesus' ministry, it was based on a price he was about. It's like a visa card. You know the visa card, you you spend money that you're you're spending this money, but you know you're gonna pay it. And you're you're using you're using the, the its ability to make things happen based on what will be paid. It's exactly how Jesus performed the miracles in those three years. Every time he forgave someone in those three years, it was because of the price he was about to pay. Every time a miracle happened in those three years, it was because of a price it was about to pay. Listen to this verse, Matthew chapter 8. This is one day when Jesus was performing many miracles and casting out many demons. Listen, how could he do all those things? Answer the cross. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word, and he healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah, and he quotes Isaiah 53, which is about the cross. He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. That verse is describing what he did on the cross. And yet the miracles described here happened the years leading up to the cross. And here's the point. Every ear that was opened, every resurrected body, every demon that was cast out, every time he showed forgiveness, every time he showed grace of God to someone, every single time, it was like a visa card that was going to be paid for on the cross. And this is amazing. This is incredible. How could Jesus retrospectively pay for the sins, not just in the last three years, for that ladies and others in his three years of ministry? but actually pay for the thousands of years of sins committed since the creation of the world for everyone who was a believer in God up until the cross. How could he retrospectively do that? How? Because he was God. He is God. He can retrospectively forgive. Question, how can he forwards pay for everyone everyone and every sin that would ever be committed from the point of the cross till the end of the consummation of the ages when Jesus will return, there will be a new heavens and a new earth. How can he pay for that era following the cross between then and judgment day? Answer, he could pay for it because he's God. For one moment in history, God chose the exact moment in history, God became a man for the purpose of dying for men. He died on behalf, as one of us, on behalf of all of us, one who is fully man, fully God, in the center of history, paying the price for past future sins, all sins you will ever commit were placed on the Son of God. That's why adulterers can be told, neither do I condemn you. He's not brushing it under the carpet. He died on a cross. Don't brush your sin under the carpet. He died on the cross. Don't say it's nothing. It's huge. He died on the cross. That's amazing. Is this lady saved? I think she is. Where are your accusers? Does no one condemn you? What does she answer? No one. Lord. You see that? 
No one lords. My guess is this Jesus was not a stranger to her. I don't think this was the first time Jesus she had met Jesus. Remember, Jesus was accused of being a friend of sinners. Remember, he went to all the wrong parties. He went out, went out of his way to show love to sinners. My guess is she had met him before. This is just me surmising. My guess is she had met him before, and maybe with many others was impressed. But maybe she at that point had thought, you know, uh, it's too much at stake. I know who he is. I know who he is. I know what he's saying. But man, I've got this whole life here. The New International Version says, um, when at the end Jesus says, go, he didn't say go and sin no more. The New International Version says, go and leave your life of sin. She was living a whole way of life that was a whole sinful way of life. My guess is she probably knew who he was and probably at some point in the past that I, I, I can't give up all this to follow him. But here she comes to that point again. And maybe today you're coming to that point again. Maybe at some point in the past you'd made a wrong decision about Jesus. And today God brings you to this place. You're convicted, like all of us, that we are sinners. And you're brought to this place again. And your opportunity is, do you call him Lord? Because what does it mean to call him Lord? Calling him Lord isn't like, I mean, you can't say he's your Lord if you're saying, okay, Jesus, this is exactly how I'm going to live my life. Please bless it. No, no, that's you saying, I'm Lord. You know, he's not Lord. It might just be a title you give him, but he's not your Lord. When you say Lord, you're saying, I'm coming under your authority. You can debate with me what sins you think, oh, yeah, God doesn't see this sin. God doesn't see this as sin. Hey, it's not about, I'm not going to judge you at the end of the world. Okay, it's to do with what does God think. I don't care what you say. Is what is the Holy Spirit convicting you of as a sin? Don't try and justify it to me. Don't try and answer it away. And I won't try. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a sinner. I can't answer for any. I can't justify any of my sin. He's my Lord. I can't say that what he says is wrong is right. I can't disagree with him. He's everything. Follow Jesus. She made Jesus Lord of her life. Will you call him Lord? Don't fool about. Don't say, oh, he's my Lord when he's not your Lord. Let him be Lord. Neither do I condemn you, he says. What kind of church does God call us to be? God calls us to be just like Jesus. We love sinners. We hate sin. And when we say we hate sin, we start with our own. It's not like we love sinners and we hate sin. We go, that's in there and that's in there. And we wrote articles and we become bloggers. No, no. We love sinners, but we hate sin. And it starts right here. God, I'm gutted that I'm a sinner. And thank you for your radical grace. I'm loved. So I'm going to show that love to others. That's exactly how we should be. Don't misunderstand our rejection of sin as if it's a rejection of sinners. Just because we reject sin doesn't mean we reject sinners. Some people say, oh no, you're against this. That means I'm not welcoming your church. No, no. We reject sin. We start with our own. That does not mean we reject sinners. How could we? God doesn't. And also, don't think for a minute on the other side that our acceptance of sinners means acceptance of sin. Okay. No, that's not right either. We accept sinners because God does, but we don't accept sin because of the cross. You know how much it cost him? We can't accept sin. He died to take away sin. So we've got this incredible tension. And I know some of you, you know, maybe not you, but some people would want us to become more fundamentalists. You know, 
call out the sins and tell them they're sinners and da-da-da-da and make people not welcome, okay? Okay, yeah, we're going to make you welcome and we will tell you your sin, but we'll start with our own. But we're not going to be fundamentalists. A bit mental, not much fun. And equally, we're not going to go away over here, liberals, where all of a sudden we're so liberal that everything, oh, just come as you are, you're welcome, just do what you want, no sin is in, no, it's just, yeah, whatever. What? Man, seriously? That totally denies what the Bible says. That totally denies the holiness of God. There's no contradiction. God resolved the, this tension within himself, the justice and the love of God. It was no contradiction. It answered in the cross where all of a sudden love was displayed. Sin was paid for. So we must, as a church, love and welcome all sinners. I don't care who those sinners are. I don't care what they, their lifestyle is. Welcome at Destiny Church Edinburgh. But whoever you are, including me, sinners, welcome at Destiny Church Edinburgh. Repent of your sins. Don't tell me, you're, oh no, this, isn't, this is okay. No, no, I don't care what you say. What does God say? I repent of my sins. Do you repent of your sins? Stand before God. I want to equip you to live in grace and know the radical love of God in your life. Luke 7 verse 34 says that Jesus was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. What a reputation. I wouldn't actually mind that reputation. I, 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 you know, sometimes I actually have been slated oftentimes for those I love, for those I, I don't condemn, for those I welcome. I've been accused several times of, I, you, know, you know what, never, never Google your own name. It's horrible. Oh, it's horrible. No, seriously, I've got, it's, a, it's a cult forum. I read it this week. I shouldn't have Googled my own name. I typed in Peter Anderson, this website saying, avoid this cult. What? <sighs> Man. You give your life to serve people and honor God and you get called all sorts of stuff. It's horrible. Anyway, that's me just doing my own therapy moment. <laughs> Friend of tax collectors and sinners, Jesus got called stuff. Okay. I'm just loving God and just believing the Bible. Mark 2, 17. I have not come to call those who think they are righteous. I've come to those who know they are sinners. That was Jesus. He touched the untouchable. He hung out with those that you should never hang out with. He went to all the wrong parties. When he touched lepers, he didn't get the leprosy. They got his healing. He, 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 he allowed notorious women to touch him and to weep and to wash his feet with their hair and their tears. Jesus really crossed all the social taboos. In his inner circle were Pharisees, sorry, were tax collectors. Matthew was a tax collector. That was such a corrupt official. That was, man, that was, that'd be like working for the Royal Bank of Scotland. It was such a... <laughs> and then there was Peter. There was Peter, you know, the great leader Peter. And what happened just as Jesus was being arrested? Mental. He gets a sword and cuts off the ear. Imagine this was like one of the key leaders in your church. Yeah, he's known for cutting off ears. You think, what a weirdo you are. You're violent. This is, this is in Jesus' group. This was Jesus' plan to change the world, this motley crew. We are the perfect church for those who are not. Scene number five, go and sin no more, verse 11. Oh, this, this thrills my soul. He said, neither do I condemn you. He didn't stop there though, but let's, let's us stop there for a minute. Neither do I condemn you. Oh, cool. So I'll just go commit adultery. Cool. I'll just go diddle my taxes. Oh, that's cool. I'll just go watch porn. Oh, that's cool. I'll just go get high. That's fine. Don't condemn me. God doesn't condemn me. Neither do I condemn you. 
But he didn't stop there. He said, neither do I condemn you. And from now on, sin no more. It's an amazing declaration. Neither do I condemn you. And from now on, sin no more. Question, what did he say first? Did he say, neither do I condemn you or go and sin no more first? What did he say first? Neither do I condemn you. And oftentimes, this is the difference between religion and grace. Religion does it the other way around. Religion would say, don't sin anymore, and then you'll not be condemned. That's religion. But Jesus didn't do that. And that's a high-risk strategy. You mean you're going to acquit them first, Jesus, before you know how they're going to behave? You serious, Jesus? That's a high-risk strategy. Come on, seriously? Jesus didn't say, sin no more, and I'll not condemn you. He said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. It's an amazing truth. This is what Jesus does. If Jesus had said, go and sin no more, then I'll not condemn you, he would have been giving her a life sentence. He would have been giving every one of us a life sentence. Because not one of us could earn no condemnation. You see, where does the power come from to sin no more? And the answer is in knowing that he does not condemn you. That's where it comes from. Ironically, people who have a problem with grace would say, no, no, you can't say God doesn't condemn you because they'll just go and sin more. Have you read the verses we just read? In saying such things, they are expressing great unbelief in the power of God. You see, when Jesus said, neither do I condemn you, go sin no more, I don't think the first thing she did was, oh, I'll go and find my, my lover. I don't, I don't think she would have gone, out, gone looking for her lover. That's the, that would be the last thing in her mind. And yet people think, well, and do you know what? Jesus was really clear. Jesus was so clear. Here's what Jesus was clear on. She's now free. He knew she's now going to walk free because he knows the power of the grace of God and the love of God. You see, grace isn't just pardon. Grace is power. It's not just pardon, it's power. It doesn't just enable you to know his acceptance. It empowers you to live in that acceptance. And the truth is, the more I understand the grace of God, the more I know the free gift of no condemnation through Jesus Christ, despite how messed up I am, the more I want to please him. That's not like, all right, the more I want to not please him. No, no, the more I want to please him. And listen, just because some people take that free gift of the grace of God, no condemnation, they take that as their excuse to go and live as they want, doesn't mean I'm not going to stop preaching it. People would do the same with Jesus. They use Jesus' great generosity as their excuse to do what they wanted as well, okay? But it doesn't mean he didn't stop giving free gift of great, great generosity. Our message is God accepts sinners based on the cross unconditionally because of his radical love. Accept it and let it transform your soul. We don't apply the law to you and say, obey the laws. We say, follow Jesus, be transformed by grace. And you know what? You'll not want to murder people. You'll not want to commit adultery because love is the fulfillment of the law. Your heart has been transformed by grace. You are empowered to live in the grace of God. And even if you do sin, knowing that you're not condemned empowers you to, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more again. That is the incredibleness of the grace of God. Grace empowers you to do what the law could not. 
The law came to make you know you're a sinner. Grace comes to set sinners free. You see, it says in Titus chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, listen to what it says. The grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness. That's what the grace of God does. How do you say no to ungodliness? The grace of God teaches you to say no to ungodliness. You see, sin does not stop stop God's grace from flowing. But God's grace will stop sin. Grace of God is not given to me as a reward for godliness. It is given to me so that I can say no to ungodliness. And just let me end with a quote from, you remember John Bunyan who wrote The Pilgrim's Progress? He said this, and he sums up the power of God's grace. He said, um, as, if, as if God was speaking to him, Run, John, run, the law commands, but neither gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. Jesus said to this lady caught in adultery, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And her life was permanently changed by the cross that was happened to about to happen six months later in the resurrection. He was her Lord. You'll meet her in heaven. She's righteous because of Jesus. And the good news today is this, that Jesus 2,000 years later, because it's just 2,000 years, 2,000 years means nothing because he's God. That cross is just as active and as powerful and as vital today as if you were standing right at the very foot of the cross and it was happening right in front of you. That's how powerful and imminent it is right now in our lives. The grace of God is so robust. Don't run from him. Run to him and live in grace, people of God. Let's pray. Jesus, what can we say? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being a distributor of great grace. Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for dying on that cross and rising again so that through your death and resurrection, we could be declared righteous, forgiven, no more condemnation. We worship you, God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, what a great plan of salvation. Thank you, Jesus, in that moment. Your moral law required death for the sinner. But your eternal love provided that death by dying in the sinner's place so that no condemnation, freedom, eternal acceptance could become ours instead of what we deserve, condemnation and eternal separation from God. We worship you, God. Oh, we worship you, God. We worship you, God, the true God, living God, Savior God. Just thank him for his grace. Thank him for his grace. He's here. We're in his presence. Don't retract from him. Come close to him. Call him Lord. Thank you, Jesus. He's so good. So powerful. Thank you, you are so gracious. And today, here in Leith and in this great city you have more than enough grace for every sinner who turns to you thank you 
you offer no condemnation. Thank you, you offer free gifts of righteousness. While we're praying, maybe you're here today and you're convicted of sin. You know that you're a sinner and you can't justify your sin. You can't say, oh, this was okay or that was okay. You're in the presence of the, the lawgiver, the judge himself. Don't justify your sin. And when you're convicted, don't run away. Right now, run to him. Some of you know you've sinned. Running away is not going to help. The only thing that will help is right now coming to the Savior. Believers, come to the Savior. Repent for your sin. Those who haven't trusted Jesus, today's your day. Make him Lord of your life. Let him be first place in your heart and lives. If that's you, and you're saying, Peter, today I want Jesus to be Lord of my life. I want that experience that that lady had. I want to be acquitted. I want to be forgiven. I want to have a relationship with God. If that's you today, then I invite you to pray this prayer with me just now. Just one line at a time, under your breath, this is between you and God. Pray, dear Lord God, thank you for your amazing love for me. Jesus, thank you for dying for me on that cross and rising again on the third day. I know that that needed to happen so that I could be forgiven. And today I put my faith in you to be my Savior. Be Lord of my life from now on forever. Thank you for hearing my prayer and accepting me as your own today.